It's good to have you this morning. If you haven't been with us, we are in the book of Matthew, and we're walking through the book of Matthew. And today we find ourselves in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Now, how do you feel when all of a sudden the lights go out and you can't see anything and you have no way of turning them back on? It can be a very unsettling feeling, right? If you're relying on light and then it's gone and you have no way of replacing it, if you're walking through the forest at night and your only light goes out, yeah, it's not, not so good. Not a great situation to be in. I'll tell you what I hate is when I'm driving, especially towards the end of the day when the sun's starting to go down, you're driving and the sun is hitting your windshield directly, which is already bad enough. You guys know how that is. But then you're coming up on a shaded area. And if you've driven very much, you know what I'm talking about. There's that moment when you, you it's like you're driving into a black abyss. I mean, you can't see a thing. It doesn't matter. You know, it, there's that split second that you know if there's a child in the road, if there's a tank stopped in the road, if there's a brick wall there, it doesn't matter. You're going to plow into it because you can't see a thing. And so you just kind of take a deep breath and then you go through it and then you're like, okay, there's the road again. But that's scary when you lose that vision, that light. You know what else is scary? When you're trying to fix somebody a tasty meal and you ran out of salt. Because now you know, now I've got a problem. Here's your saltless eggs or your bland potatoes or whatever it may be. Can you imagine if we ran out of salt in the world? We didn't have salt anymore. What a nightmare that would be. What if the world lost all of its salt and all of its light? You think things are bad now? I mean, my goodness. It would be terrible, both literally and figuratively, because Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And gosh, if, if the world lost all its Christians, you think it's bad now. It'd be horrible. Or what if we had light, but we just never used it? We kept it covered up all the time. Or we have salt, but it stays in the pantry. That would be exactly the same as not having it at all. Now, thankfully... The world's not going to lose its light or its salt, at least not till the very end, and both literally and figuratively, but to a degree, we have responsibility over how salty and how bright this world is, which is what we'll see Jesus teaching his disciples. But before we jump into this passage, let's pray. God, what, a, what an amazing just few verses you know, we're going to mainly focus on this morning, but it, there's a lot there. And I pray that we would plumb the depths of this, that it would penetrate our souls, our hearts, our minds, that we would leave here later just better prepared to be what Jesus is calling us to be. And uh, yeah, just, Lord, we don't want barriers blocking our light in this world and, and we don't want barriers blocking the light that you're trying to penetrate our hearts with this morning. So we pray that we would just let ourselves be um, living sacrifices to you. That we would listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start with just, we're going to start with verse 13. 
Jesus told them, this is right after the Beatitudes we studied a couple weeks ago. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So this statement, you are the salt of the earth, has long been the subject of lengthy debate and conjecture because a lot of different people have a lot of different ideas of what Jesus meant when he said that his disciples are the salt of the earth. And that's because salt has so many different uses. It uh, was used in Old Testament sacrifices. It was used in covenants as well. Second Chronicles 13.5. I'm not going to read it, but that was about a covenant of salt that God made with David. John MacArthur pointed out that salt was used throughout ancient history as a sign of friendship. And it was a very valuable commodity. The Romans said that there's nothing more valuable than salt and sun. And why was that? Because it was used as a preservative. You know, if, if you don't have refrigeration available, which the world didn't for most of history, then what are you going to do with your meat? You're going to soak it in a salty brine, or you're going to smother it in salt and set it out and let it dry up and turn into jerky. And he pointed out that Roman soldiers were paid with salt. And so if a soldier was lousy, then he wasn't worth his salt. And maybe you've heard that phrase before. That's where it comes from. And we also know that salt can be used in healing. WebMD uh, says that salt can be used for canker sores, ingrown toenails, stuffy or runny noses, which is why they have those saline nose sprays, right? Soaking in salt water can help uh, ease redness and with skin, with people with eczema and psoriasis and things like that. Baking soda is a type of salt. It's a natural antacid. And what do people say to do whenever you have a sore throat? Gargle some salt water, right? And baking soda and salt in, in one of those forms can also help with bug bites, tired feet, bad breath, heat cramps, constipation, and teeth stains. You see, salt can be used for healing, but we also know, we know from experience when you use it for healing, it stings too, right? There's that phrase, throw salt on the wound to indicate someone, basically you kick somebody while they're down or you're making a bad situation even worse for them. And salt can be used to make the ground barren, where nothing can grow. You know, if you have a feud with your neighbor, and you look over, and you're tired of looking at that beautiful, lush lawn that they have, and they got all those rose bushes and that nice garden, and you're just sick of them, and then what can you do? You can go throw salt all over their land, and it's just going to die. Nothing's going to grow anymore. I'm not saying that you should do that. But that is a use for salt. That's why nothing grows on the salt flats in Utah, right? That's, which was actually on the picture at the beginning. So when Jesus tells his disciples that they are the salt of the earth, they could be thinking all kinds of things. They're like, oh, well, are we more valuable than everybody else? Or, or are we supposed to go out and disrupt and, and ruin the evil efforts of the world, metaphorically salting their fields so that they can't grow evil anymore? Or are we supposed to go and, and heal people? Or are we supposed to go and be the salt that stings when we preach the gospel and point out the, the sins of the people? Like how John the Baptist stung Herod and Herodias by pointing out their immoral relationship that they had? Or how Jesus would sting the Pharisees and Sadducees by pointing out their hypocrisy? Or they might be thinking, we're supposed to preserve the world and keep it from going bad. And, 
But here's the thing. I don't think any of those are the best interpretation of what Jesus is saying. It doesn't mean they're all bad or that they're even untrue. Obviously, it's salt stings and there's those truths. Even if Jesus is not getting at that here, that yeah, we are supposed to kind of sting the world to, to a degree. And we also do preserve the world in certain ways. You know, if there weren't Christians in the world, there wouldn't be... If there, that would mean there was, there's nobody in the world who's fulfilling their purpose to give glory to God, to praise and worship Him, and there's nobody taking the gospel out, making disciples. At that point, if the world was like that, it'd be ready for destruction. Just like He destroyed the earth with a flood. Even though there was one righteous man left, and He's like, all right, it's time. I'm going to destroy everything. He destroyed Sodom. There was only one guy there worth saving, Lot. And eventually... He is going to destroy everything, and it is going to get that bad. That's why part of me is one, I don't know if the preservation thing works, because God tells us if we're supposed to prevent the world from going bad, we are going to fail, because eventually it's going to get that bad, and He's going to destroy it all. But you could say, well, that's true, but we do slow down the decay. That's what Christians, one of the things that Christians do still. I don't think that's the idea that Jesus is getting at, with these words, because we've skipped the most common use for salt, which is what? Flavor, yeah, taste. Job 6, 6, the first part of that verse, can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Of course, the answer is, yeah, it can, but you don't want it to be. And the key is understanding when Jesus says, but if the salt should lose its taste. Now, there are a few translations that say lose its saltiness, which could further confuse things, but most translators interpret that as taste or flavor or savor. And <clears throat> now, most of you probably eat food, right? Well, let's be honest. Let's look at, we, we look like we eat, and some of you maybe cook food. And some of you are like, well, I don't cook, but I watch cooking competitions on TV, and so you know that you can make a lot of mistakes when it comes to cooking food. But the number one mistake you can make when it comes to flavor is forgetting the salt. That's a big deal. You can watch montages online of Gordon Ramsay going off and complaining about salt. And I even made a very short montage myself of, of how important salt is as an ingredient to food. And that has, is Gordon Ramsay showing us how to make a burger. Let's see what he's right, doing. Uh, welcome home. I'm going to show you how to make the most amazing burger. First things first, season it. And more importantly, try and get this done the day before. If you get this done the day before, you can't season the burger after it's cooked. So make sure you roll that seasoning around the outside and mop up all that seasoning. So salt, pepper, a little drizzle of oil and lightly toast those buns. Salt, pepper, fresh grilled onions on a burger. Trust me, delicious. Easy to do, absolutely phenomenal. Lightly season them on the grill, look, from a distance. It's really important. Season, 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 season. Close, give me an S, S, give me an A, A, give me an L, L, give me a T. Salt and pepper on that tomato. Lightly season it, beautifully done. Salt. Salt's good. It's important. You don't want to leave the salt off. 
And salt, humans like the flavor of salt itself, but here's what it does. It also acts as a flavor enhancer. According to the spruce eats, in small amounts, salt can intensify sweetness. That's why people sometimes like to sprinkle salt in their desserts or on their fruit. And Leslie walked out, but that's why I like putting salt on my watermelon, all right? And when I was doing that after we got married, she looked at me like I'm crazy. Like, no, it makes it better, and it, it brings out the sweetness, and it also counteracts bitter flavors, and so it can be used to de-bitter vegetables and other foods, and salt can release certain molecules in food, bringing out some of the ingredients, flavors, and making the food more aromatic. And if none of our food used salt, it would be bland. It would, it would not be distinct. Salt makes food unique. It makes it stand out. And therefore, if G, if Christians are the salt of the earth, and what Jesus is highlighting is how salt affects the taste of food, then we should see ourselves as the flavor enhancers of the world. We make the world taste good in God's mouth. That's what we should do. Like the lukewarm water that we studied back in Revelation, that he wanted to spit out of his mouth. He also wants to spit out a bland world. But here his people are the salt. And Jesus used salt. He could have used pepper or whatever. But it's the spice, right? We are the spice of the world giving flavor to it. But what does that mean exactly? That's still kind of abstract. What does that look like? Well, we should have a distinct flavor to our lives that the world is going to notice. We should stand out. How many of you consider yourselves to have a sensitive palate? Meaning that when you taste food, you can tell, you can taste what ingredients have been used to make that food. Right? And some have sensitive palates. Others are, some are better than others. Some of you can detect that hint of oregano or that pinch of cinnamon or that note of rose. And some of you are like, I don't know, it tastes good. You look at it and you're like, well, it looks like uh, tomatoes, olives, pepperoni. It's like, yeah, you're staring at a slice of pizza, Sherlock. Okay. Good job. But everybody can detect salt. You don't have to have a sensitive palate to be able to detect salt. You bite into something and it's way too salty, you immediately know what's wrong. You bite into something and it it doesn't have any salt, you immediately know what it needs. And so you reach for the salt shaker. But when Jesus, he goes on to say, if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything, but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What does he mean by that? Is he saying that you can lose your salvation? No, that's not what this passage is about. And and when you even get into it, technically, salt can't lose its taste. It can't lose its saltiness. Technically, you can't do that. But here's what can happen, is that it can become contaminated with enough impurities, or it can be diluted to the point that you can't taste it anymore. Douglas O'Donnell Envision Christians as a bowl of salty soup. And if we lose our saltiness, as in our distinctiveness in the world, then we're like, well, we become worthless. It's as if there's no salt in the soup. And he goes on to say, and I'm going to read some things he says here. Think of a bowl of soup that at first has just the right amount of ingredients. It has some broth and carrots, meat and potatoes, noodles and garlic, oregano and basil, and salt. Well, what would happen to the taste of the salt if you added too many carrots or potatoes or too much water? 
Let's say you had a perfect pint of soup that you dumped into a six-quart stock pot, then you added four quarts of water. Now, if you proceeded to plunge your wooden kitchen spoon into this batch for a taste, you wouldn't be able to taste the sodium chloride. The salt in that soup would lose its saltiness. But if you started adding all the ingredients the world loves, a dash of the love of money, a pinch of the fleeing pleasures of sexual immorality, and so on, then you start to water down your witness and taste just like every other bland, unsalted, or undersalted soup. There's to be a distinct taste to Christians. But if we, for example, spend three weeks picking out expensive drapes for our third lake house, five minutes laughing at a dirty joke at the water cooler, or all day Sunday glued to the television set watching our politicians spin and our athletes run and jump, don't think the world doesn't notice and don't think a heap of water isn't being poured into our once salty soup. End quote. He's right. We have to be different distinct. When people taste us, so to speak, they should feel and see the difference between us and all the other ingredients in the world. People should be able to look at your work ethic and go, that dude is different. They should look at your parenting and go, that family is different. They should look at your bank statements, your search history online, your Netflix watch history. They should see a difference between you and everybody else in this world. They should go to your church and be like, that group of people is not like all the other groups of people in this world. They should be able to see what you do on social media and be like, they're different than everything else that I'm seeing online. And when I say different, I'm not just talking about weird, like Eugene likes to be weird. I'm not just saying they look at you and they're like, well, they're different. I'm glad I'm not like them. No, I'm saying they see, hey, there's someone who loves unconditionally, who speaks kindly, who works joyfully, who gives generously, who maintains purity. Look at them. They have flourishing relationships. This is so unlike everything else in the world. And it ties back to everything that Jesus, everything Jesus teaches us, but he had just taught in the Beatitudes. And even though other people might not believe what you believe, and even though they might not want to repent, they might not want to follow Jesus like you follow Jesus, they should still be jealous when they taste us. They taste us and they're like, oh, my cooking don't taste this good. What did you put in this? And then you're like, well, would you, I'm not the chef. Would you like to meet the chef? And they're like, yeah, I want to meet the chef. And you're like, well, here, I need to introduce you to Jesus. But if we lose that flavor, right? If we grumble and complain at work just like everybody else. We divorce our spouses just like everybody else. We raise up undisciplined children, addicted to screens, just like everybody else. We laugh at the same dirty jokes, spread the same gossip, hold on to our money, watch the same garbage on TV, water down our church to entertain people. Then we're not good for anything. We become worthless. We fail to do what salt is meant to do, and there's no point in having us around, just like there's no point in lighting a light and then sticking it under a basket. As Jesus goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, you are the light of the world. 
A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Now, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. You know, there's another passage where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, right? And now he, he's calling his disciples the light of the world. So it's like, which is it? Well, it's both. We are the light of the world, his followers, but we are the light because we carry his light, right? He is the source of light. But we're also supposed to be like a city on a hill. Not, not a city under a hill, not a city in a tunnel or a cave, not a city underwater, not a city hidden in a valley. If Riviera were a ranch, we wouldn't want to be Hidden Valley Ranch. I'll let you catch it. <laughs> but, you know, on the other side, we got small mountains all around Eugene. If you go to the other side of the small mountains around Eugene, you, you're not going to be able to see Eugene. But if Eugene was on top of Spencer Butte, if Portland was on top of Mount Hood, you'd be able to see from a very, very long distance away, which is what light is meant to do. Why should, a city be, why should we be a city on a hill? Because the world needs to see our light. Light is best when it's up high. When, when you get light up high and there's nothing in its way blocking it, you can see it from a long way off. One of my favorite things I've ever done in my life was last year when we visited Olympic National Park in Washington. And one night we went up to the top of Hurricane Ridge to do some stargazing. And it's like 5,000 feet up there. And we go up there at, it's night, like nighttime, like 11, midnight. You know, you go up there, you lay down on the grass, you look up, there's no lights on around you. And it's absolutely breathtaking. It is mesmerizing. You look up in the sky. I saw more stars than I've ever seen. The Milky Way was bright and clear, like a brush stroke across the sky. You could see satellites just phew, phew, every different direction all over the place. And there was a meteor shower going on that night too. And so I got to see meteors streak across the cosmos. It is mesmerizing. It is breathtaking. It is amazing to sit there and think, I can see all these lights. That's what they are. They're lights in the sky. And they're so far away. World Atlas said that the farthest object a human can see with the naked eye is the Andromeda Galaxy, which is 2.5 million light years away. Now, one light year is nearly 6 trillion miles. So we're talking about 14.7 quintillion miles away. Let me break this down so that you really understand how far, how big this is. That's 14 quintillion. 696 quadrillion, 563 trillion, 432 billion, 959 million, 19,327 miles away. That's how far your eye can see light. That is amazing. But you know how easy it is to block that light? Close your eyes, hide in a cave. Stay at home and shut the curtains. And then you can't see it. You don't light a lamp to put it under a basket. You want to lift it up. 
for all to see out in the open. If you are a follower of Christ, Jesus has lit you up. Your switch has been flipped. The question is, what are you going to do with that light? It's meant to be unencumbered for everyone to see it. You don't want anything blocking that light. If we went out into the woods and you asked me for a light and I handed you this, you'd look at me like, what are you smoking, Matt? This is on now. And just as crazy as it is to hand you a flashlight with black duct tape covering the front of it, is that's how seriously crazy it is for a Christian to hide their faith or to hide themselves. You might want to have that attitude like, oh, I don't want to go to church, really. I don't want to tell people I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't want to evangelize. I don't want to get to know my neighbors. You know what I want to do? I want to go to work. I want to keep my head down. I want to go home. I want to be left alone. Well, you can do that. But what are you good for at that point? Nothing. As far as God's kingdom is concerned. And you might be like, whoa, 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 no, no. I, I, I contribute to society. I work. I, I, you know, I buy things. I provide jobs for other people. I'm not... I'm not hurting anybody. Well, for one thing, that's not what the light of Christ is meant for. It's meant to spread the gospel and expand his kingdom. And for another thing, you are hurting people. Because if someone is stumbling around hurting themselves in the darkness and you have light to give them, but you hold on to it or you cover it up, then you are hurting them. It's like a lie by omission. You're not giving them what you have to give them that would help. You see, being a light is active work. It's active work. Because to do nothing is to hide your light. Just like we talked about a couple weeks ago. We're going through the Beatitudes. talked about being a peacemaker. right? And it's like, hey, you're not a peacemaker just because you're not a troublemaker. In the same way, you're not a useful light just because you're not spreading darkness. You've got to let your light shine. You've got to remove everything that's in the way, and you've got to lift it up as high as you can so that people can see it as far as they can. Now, I'm not saying go make a name for yourself in the world. Obviously, I'm not saying, hey, you should be seeking notoriety, popularity, power, so that your light shines bigger and brighter for the world to see. No, Scripture warns us against all those selfish pursuits, but we do need to be bold. We do need to be courageous. We do need to be public. We must be public. Sometimes Christians want to hide from the world. They want to hide to protect themselves, or they want to hide to protect their families. But how can the world see your light if you're hiding it off the grid in the woods? They can't. Or how can light penetrate darkness if all the light is constantly huddling together and not spreading out in the darkness? If Christians are like, no, we're going to start our own communes and we're going we're to start our own state. We're going to start our own country. We're tired of living in this darkness. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. You have to live in the darkness. You're the light. The light has to penetrate the darkness. 
That's why I also struggle with the idea of secret underground churches. Now, I know that there are places in this world where it is a lot more difficult to live out the Christian faith. And I sympathize with our brothers and sisters in Christ in those places that have to navigate those roads and figure out, well, how do we be a witness while our government wants to eradicate us? But at the same time, is that not exactly what Jesus was preparing his disciples for when he said these words? It was. We'll back up to some verses that we covered a couple weeks ago. Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely slay every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they, were per- how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus, in his teaching, he warns them about persecution. All kinds, not just little persecution, but all kinds, up to death. He warns them. He says, accept it as a blessing. And then he says, let your light shine. Don't cover it. Don't cover your light in the basket. And somehow that's supposed to coincide with Christians hiding their church meetings and hiding their Bibles and their crosses from the government and doing secret baptisms. I don't see that. That is not what I see in Scripture. That is not what I see Jesus teaching his disciples. That's not the example that I see in the early church. And even though we're going to study this passage later in our series on Matthew, I feel like we need to read it today. We go to Matthew 10, verses 16 through 28. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are, how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his master and the servant, or like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they had called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I get that Jesus says, be wise as serpents. But we can't make the argument that that means to hide because everything else in the passage is antithetical to hiding. Right? It's antithetical to being dragged before governors and the courts. 
And not only, he says, do not fear them. And hiding secrecy with our faith is a fearful response. That's what it is. But he says, proclaim on the housetops. Now that sounds a lot more like, hoist your light up. Let it shine like a city on a hill. So I just, I don't see the whole secret underground church thing in the Bible. It's not what I, the examples that we see, even in the Old Testament, that's not what Daniel did when he was ordered not to pray. He went up, opened his window, and prayed. I read an article from 2011. There was a radio personality, Christian, who was lamenting the theological drift of many denominations and churches in America, as well as the continuing encroachment of the government on the ability of Christians to practice their faith freely. And he said, quote, The Christian church, I believe, will be driven underground in America as it has been in other nations around the globe. Otherwise, it will cease to exist in this land. Now, I agree with some of his assessments about uh, where things are headed, but I do not agree with that statement because Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So I am in no way, not one little bit worried that somehow the world is going to snuff out the light of Christ unless we go underground and get secret. No. I'm telling you that as long as I'm pastoring Riviera Baptist Church, we're not going to go that way. We're not going to become a secret church. If our faith becomes illegal, our response is not going to be, all right, let's shut down the website, sell the land, let's start meeting secretly in, in different locations, let's get code names, let's do signals, and, and like we're spies trying to sneak our way into eternity. No, our response is going to be, hey, here we are, we're preaching the gospel. You can see us. And we're going to keep doing that no matter what the consequences are. And when we're dragged before the courts or thrown into the prisons or hanged in the streets, we'll show the world they don't have the ability to take our light. They can't do it. We'll shine the brightest right before they kill us. If Oregon makes a law that I can't preach about something biblical, then the week after they pass that law, I'm going to be standing up here on Sunday morning preaching on that subject, and we'll put it on YouTube if they let us. And if they tell me that my Bible is illegal, and I can't have that, I'm not going to hide it. If they say, hey, we're coming to search your house, I'm going to make it easy. They walk up, I'll be sitting on the front porch with my Bible open, and I'll read to them. And if they find me for it, that's fine. If they take me to prison for it, that's fine. If they kill me for it, that's fine. And what that will do is that will strengthen you to not lose your courage. And you'll say, you know what? We can do this. The prophets went before us. The pastor went before us. And we can do it too. Now you might say, well, but why not just have the secret meetings? And why not just hide 
your Bible, if that means you get to stay with your family, and if that means you get to keep doing ministry. Well, see, those kinds of thoughts are operating on an assumption that it's better to be free, for one thing. To which I would say, why don't you do a Bible study on all the ministry that was done from prison? And there's plenty to work with. And you might say, well, maybe it's better for the gospel that churches be secret. But here's the thing. Our light is not meant to shine on just a few people in just a few places. Even if people hate the light, even if they reject the light, it's still meant to shine for them, right? It shines in the darkness. It gives light for all who are in the house. And we are the light of the whole world. So we don't want our light to just shine on our friends and our family and on people who are sympathetic with us and won't turn us into the authorities. No, the light is supposed to shine for the authorities, for the people who hate you and don't want your light to be here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. And I believe that he is right. That that is what scripture teaches. As hard as it is to say, and as hard as it is, I know, on some of our brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history, I just have to show you what the Bible says. But how do we make our light shine? Well, verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So we get an insight here. How do we make that light shine in the world? Well, we've got to be public. And we do it through good works. Now, here's where you also might start to argue again. And you might say, well, see there, we, we can do good works. And we can still keep our faith concealed and only share the gospel in private when it's safe. We see what you've done there. Now you've removed public proclamation of the gospel from your list of good works. I don't think you should do that. I don't think you want to do that. Now there are more good works than just publicly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you don't want to take that off your list. You see, we cannot share the gospel with just our actions. We can give credibility to our words. We can, but the the actions don't communicate the message itself. Like they communicate that the message that we have is truly powerful to change your life. So yes, we have 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans, which is being salt, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Yeah, that is absolutely true. We even have 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We don't want to discount the power of good works, although we shouldn't twist that and think, oh, well, you see, that husband doesn't even know his wife's a Christian. No, 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 that's not. She's being salt. But we also have to pair those good works with the public 
proclamation of the gospel. Romans 10, 14 through 17. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one on whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. We have to preach the gospel. But now you can say, well, well does that, can the preaching and the teaching of the gospel be limited to the private sphere and withheld from the public domain? To which I would say, no, it cannot. Mark 16, 19 through 20. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. In Acts 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed the city that was full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to look at the prophets of the Old Testament, you want to look at all the ministry that the disciples did throughout the New Testament, the apostles and everybody, the church, it was public. They had a public ministry. They were seen by the world. People knew who they were and what they were doing and what they believed because they preached it in the open. And you might say, well, yeah, but that was a different time. Now things are different. This is more serious. Are you kidding me? Do you know what happened to the apostles? They were all martyred for this. It led to their death. It's not more serious now. It's not more dangerous now. And if you have repented of your sins, you've fallen before Christ and you have asked for forgiveness and you have chosen to believe in who He is and follow Him as the Savior and Lord of your life, then you know what you are? You are salt. And you are light. You notice that that's what Jesus told them, right? He wasn't like, hey, you're trying to get salty. You're going to try to become light. You're going to work towards this. No, you are salt and you are light. That's not the question. John MacArthur put it right when he said, the question is whether you've got any taste and whether you've got any shine. You are salt. You are light. But are you diluted salt? Have you been mixed with impurities to where you've lost your flavor? Or are you a hidden light? Have you put a basket over yourself? Because if that's the case, then you might as well just throw the salt in the garbage and you might as well just turn the lights out, as in we might as well just be dead. We might as well be dead if we're diluted to the point that we have no taste or if we're hidden and we have no visibility. We might as well not be here. But we are here. And we are salt. And we are light. And so we are called to follow Christ's teachings. We are, those beatitudes that we studied a couple weeks ago, we need to have that nice saltiness, that shine in a world that's full of darkness. And the world is going to respond in two ways. They're going to repent and they're going to give 
glory to our Father in heaven, or they're going to persecute us. And if you want to lose your saltiness and you want to hide your light, then guess what? You will avoid the persecution. But you also won't be leading people to repentance to give glory to the Father in heaven. You cannot have that both ways. The reality is that the world has salt, it has light, it's me, it's you, it's others like us, if you're a Christian. The question is whether you're going to leave the salt in the pantry and the light in a basket by hiding, or whether you're going to dilute the salt with impurities by losing your distinctiveness in this world. Now, not everybody wants to wake up bright and early every morning. You might not want to wake up bright and early tomorrow or the next day or any day in your life, but if you are a follower of Christ, you do need to wake up bright and salty. And we need to be doing that every day. And it's not easy. (laughs) So we just have to keep reminding ourselves we need daily revival. So let's wake up bright and salty tomorrow and the next day and the next day.